back to Area 51 and a Half, where we talk about all things science fiction, fantasy, horror, and pop culture. As always, I am your host, John Allen, and with me is my co-host... Nick Snyder, Snyderman 501. Nick, there is a lot to talk about. We have seen the Batman. We did. That is our main topic, but before we do that, I'm going to uh, do a little recap of my Friday Night Fright Flick. As you may remember... Aliens, Friday Night Fright Flick, all month long, is exploring the Nightmare on Elm Street series. One of my favorite horror series. Yes, indeed. And so I watched the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Now, I'm going to do a bit of a retro review with this, Nick. Chime in when you can, because I know you love Freddy Krueger. I thought that this was one of Wes Craven's best movies. I completely agree with that. Especially when you look at a lot of the other movies he did pre-Nightmare and post-Nightmare. The only other movie that really comes close for me is The People Under the Stairs. Yeah. Yeah, he did, like, The Last House on the Left, mm-hmm. did the original Hills Have Eyes. Nightmare on Elm Street is was so interesting to me because I didn't realize that Bob Shea was the producer of it and that Bob Shea was oh, yeah. actually the originator behind New Line Cinema. Yeah, like, they actually called New Line Cinema the house that Freddy built because it was it was the Nightmare on Elm Street movies that really elevated Yeah, and, New and Line. for the longest time, like in the, the 90s particularly, New Line Cinema was synonymous with a lot of horror movies. Yeah, and, like, New Line Cinema was behind a lot of my... A lot of my own personal favorite movies, like Blade and the the first two Ninja Turtles movies. Yeah, I mean it's just been a fantastic thing, and I, I kind of miss. I don't know if New Line is still around. No, it got swallowed things. up by Warner Brothers. Yeah, uh, a lot of these things have. So I mean, now we got Bloom House and we've got uh, Jordan Peele's stuff. Yeah. Uh, I saw a trailer for Nope. Oh man, Nope looks so good. So anyway, um, I'm rewatching Nightmare on Elm Street, and I'm sort of watching it with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street is one of those ones that solidified the idea of teenagers being the stars of the show and the boogeyman coming for teenagers. You know, I think it it sort of solidified that trope. It had started with Halloween. Yeah, yeah. But it got solidified with Nightmare on Elm Street. I I see what you're saying with that. Yeah, and I I can agree with that. And what was interesting about it, what's, what's great about it, is that we now have two horror classics that owe a lot to the movie Psycho. Of course, we see all the connections in the original Halloween to the movie Psycho. Mm-hmm. It, it, the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis is Janet Lee's daughter, that Sam Loomis was a character in both movies, not the same character, but the same character. Yeah. And there was all those influences. Well, what was neat about Nightmare on Elm Street and that throwback again to Psycho is the fact that you have a final girl we're introduced to a final girl that is not the final girl yeah yeah when we first see her it's um amanda amanda weiss thank you yeah when we first see i remember seeing nightmare on elm street the first time when i was 12 13 and my first assumption is that this girl because all i knew at that time about nightmare on elm street was freddie so I didn't know any of the other characters. So I thought that this girl was going to be our main character because it's who we see from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And then, nope. <laughs> yeah, and it's Johnny Depp's first movie. It is, too. Before he gets into being Johnny Depp. And, you know, I- I'm not surprised when I rewatched this that Johnny Depp became such a star. Yeah. You know, because, like, the, the girls, like, they-, they were saying, oh, no, like, the Wes Craven, like, his daughter and everything. It's like, you have to hire him. He's such a dreamboat. He's so mm-hmm. nice. And so they just loved him. And he did a really excellent job. He did. You could see that the basics were there for him. The yeah. basics that made Johnny Depp were right there. It, and it's fun watching. Like, if you watch his early movies, like Nightmare on Elm Street, 
going up to what's eating Gilbert Grape, going up to the Pirates movies, you see that lovely progression of a very talented actor. Very talented character actor, yeah. too. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that brings us to Heather Langenkamp, who is like the girl next door, and she had that fresh, beautiful look to her. We all had crushes on her. Honestly, Nancy, Heather Langenkamp as Nancy in both this one, the third movie, and then as as her uh a fictionalized version of herself in New Nightmare. She's one of my favorite final girls. Absolutely well, love her. What I liked about her is that she's not a Mary Sue. That's true. You know, and she, her dad is the, the police chief. And so there's that whole dynamic going on there. It's like, why won't you listen to me? And, you know, he just wants to protect her and all this kind of stuff. So at the time, this hit all the right notes for what was happening in middle America. Yeah. You know, where my generation, it's my generation, they're teenagers, um, are sort of looking at what our parents did beforehand. And we're kind of not trusting our parents. And I don't mean like trusting that they're lying to us or trusting that they're whatever. But it's just like their ideals weren't really gelling with the 80s ideals. Well, and that, that's that's kind of the thing, right? Like if you look at it, it's kind of a, a clash of the generations, because if you look at movies from the 1950s when the parents would have grown up you see that the the, the teenagers respect their parents you see that they like i'm, I'm talking like the the frankie and uh annette, annette movies yeah. right like the really wholesome teenager movies you see that they, they respect the parents they do as they're told and they also trust um the other people in the community and that's what brings it around to Fred Fred Krueger. No, but when you when you go back to those things, you're looking at something like Rebel Without a Cost, you know, and you had those teenagers that were being rebellious mm-hmm. to their parents, but they were considered delinquents. Yeah, it's a little bit different in the '80s where we were actually talking back to our parents because it, it, what they were saying was making no sense, and that was a problem for Middle America. Right. You know, because our parents were used to towing the line. Yeah. You know, um, like my mom said, you know, it was a common phrase, children should be seen and not heard. Well, my generation said, no, we want to be heard. Yeah. You know, and why aren't you listening to us? So we get that nice dynamic where you see this nice, wholesome girl Mm -hmm. sort of turning on her parents and uncovering the lies that they told in the cover-up they told about this boogeyman, Fred Krueger. And that's, that's a big part of the movie, and a big part of the terror in the movie is if you can't trust your parents, who can you can trust? trust? Yeah. And they, they, they pull the double whammy with Nancy's dad because Nancy's dad isn't just her dad. He's also a cop. Yeah. Is he the police chief in that movie? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, he's, he's the head of it. So. Yeah. Okay. So he's the police chief of Springwood. And he's lying to they're all lying to their kids because they don't want them to remember what happened but there's also that climax where nancy figures that she can go into her dream and bring freddie out because she had that moment at the sleep clinic (laughs) funnily enough the actor playing the doctor at the sleep clinic is the voice of roger rabbit seriously (laughs) yes Oh, that's hilarious. So, but she comes back from that that dream, and uh, she brings his hat with him. Mm-hmm. You know, so she figures out that she can possibly bring Freddie in, and she says to her dad after Johnny Depp's character has been murdered, um, "What a great, dad. you know, can give me twenty minutes. That gives me enough time to fall asleep 
and bring him in. He's like, yeah, 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 honey, whatever you need to. You just go to sleep. He has no intention yeah. of coming for her after 20 minutes. None whatsoever. And so she buys into that. So there again, there's the, the lies that are constantly being told. Now, that brings me to my only problem with the movie of it not being an absolute masterpiece that it could have been. Mm -hmm. If you're a fan of Nightmare on Elm Street, you probably know what I'm talking about. Maybe you'll disagree with me. It's fine. Don't come for me if you do. It's just my opinion. She sets up a series of booby traps for, <laughs> for Freddy Krueger and... The one that really got me, because I'd forgotten about that part of the movie. The one that really got me is the swinging sledgehammer that she sets up outside of her bedroom. Now, folks, first of all, I, I'm not being sexist, so don't come for me if you think I am. This is the 80s. She is a young teenage girl, no more older than 16. Not exactly what I would consider to be athletic, but fit. Yeah. I don't know that she could hold up a sledgehammer and screw and MacGyver it the way she did. I don't. I don't, I don't think Johnny Depp's character. No, could do I that. don't buy that for one minute. And she basically Kevin McAllister's the house. So I just got to chime in with this. I kind of now want to see a Home Alone versus Freddy movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> so she basically Kevin McAllister's the house, as we've come to call it, even though she did it first. But that's kind of it, because you sit there and you look at your watch and go, didn't she just tell her dad that she wanted him to come by in 20 minutes and that she would fall asleep and in 20 minutes? It's going to take her more than 20 minutes even to set out the tripwire, mm -hmm. you know? So we're looking at a timeline thing here, and I'm going, and I just think to myself, why did you write that? I mean, I realized that something had to be written. I get that. But, and, and they, didn't know, they didn't know how to end it, because there's like, a yeah. bunch of alternate endings, but still, it wasn't necessary. Listen, as far as it goes, I don't mind it. I like it, but I also recognize the fact that it's goofy they, as hell. Well, yeah. they kind of they kind of wrote themselves into a hole there because what do you do with Freddy once he's in the real world? Yeah, well, that but that's the thing. It's they could have done without the sledgehammer. They could have done without the trip because this movie also has one of the longest fire stunts in movie history mm -hmm. That's you true. know that part i bought i bought her running into the basement i bought her throwing the lighter fluid on him i bought all that i didn't buy the sledgehammer was just goofy when you have this wonderful movie that is scary it's gross it's um the, the visual effects for the time are fantastic um, it's surreal, like a nightmare should be. You don't know when she starts dreaming, when she stops dreaming. And that's the beauty of the ending, yeah. is that she is clearly still in a dream. Yeah. And speaking of the ending, and this is the thing that makes me die laughing every time I watch this movie. And again, I love this movie. I love the Nightmare on Elm Street series. But when at the very end, when Freddy reaches through the door... And pulls the mom through the window on oh. the door. It's clearly a dummy, and it just looks terrible. But whatever. it looks terrible by today's standards. It didn't really look terrible back then. And the thing of it is, it happens so quick. Yeah. That you sit there, and yes, you're gonna laugh at it. Great. Well, but it happens so quick that it's jarring. Well, and that's the thing. Like the mediums back then, whether it was um, projector film, whether it was VHS. The, the quality wasn't as good as it is now, and you can see all, like, 
you can see, you can better see all of the little crap things in a movie like that, like you, like you the know. air mattress, the um, I don't know what the the technical term is, but the uh, stunt bag that you fall into. Yeah, 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 yeah. The airbag. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can see that. But if I were to give it a review, and if I were to give it a, a rating, even based on all of that negativity that we'd say, I would still give this movie probably four out of five stars. I think it's the probably the best in the series. I think it's, uh, as far as a horror movie goes, it has that wonderful boogeyman played by Robert Englund. He does a fantastic job as Freddy Krueger. Um, I think that it's it, it was fresh, it was original as a retro review. I, I would give it four out of five. Fair enough, fair enough. With Robert Englund, it is one of the all-time classic horror movie portrayals that we have a hard time, and we'll probably talk about this if you do the re- or if we ever talk about the remake in the future, but we have a hard time imagining Anyone someone else. else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know that the character progresses, if you want to call it that, or degresses. Some people like a wisecracking Freddy. I prefer the Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street where he's just straight up scary. See, and that's the thing. My favorite Nightmare movie is actually New Nightmare because I think Kruger is the gut-wrenchingliest, scariest version in that movie. Well, and but when you think about Freddy Krueger, too, when you look at Freddy Krueger as this iconic boogeyman, he's different from the other ones because be- this is before Scream happened. He's different from the other ones because Jason doesn't talk, Leatherface doesn't talk, Michael doesn't talk, Freddy talks. And when you look at, like, there are other horror monsters that came out after the fact that do talk. And all of them, and I'm, I'm going to, because it's March, I'll bring it up. The Leprechaun series pales in comparison to Freddy. The first movie's fun, sure, but doesn't, that type of witty repartee between the, 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 the killer monster and the victims, it doesn't live up to how Freddy runs his mouth in the entire yeah, Nightmare series. Yeah, and for me, that's what makes Bride of Chucky the best in the yeah. Child's Play series. Now, and, yeah, and that's the thing is like, Chucky, Ch- the first Child's Play movie has that, he's a mealy mouth little maggot. And he says some, he, he, the banter is good. Some of the stuff he says is good. I'm not going to repeat some of it here in the podcast, obviously. Yeah. But some, a lot of the stuff he says is great. But then as you get second and third one going, still got the great banter. But he's the only one who could really live, who can really meet. Freddy's level of banter. Somebody brought this up online years ago, and I thought it was a fantastic idea for a horror comedy. Basically, the idea was a takeoff of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, but instead of trying to shill women out of money, it was trying to get the higher body count, and it was Freddy and Chucky, which sounds like a really neat idea. I don't think it would ever really work, but it just the the idea of the two having the banter and having that bet going on, I think, is just kind of a neat idea. Maybe in a comic book it would work. Oh, maybe, maybe. Uh, let's move on from there. Just quickly though, the the next Friday Night Fright flick will be uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, and we'll discuss that on the next podcast as well. Yes, we will. Uh, that's, Nick, a good, that's gonna be a good one. What is because it is uh, Women's History Month, as you had mentioned. Okay, so this month, what I'll be doing for Sci-Fi Sunday, and I'll post this, uh, this will be posted every Sunday on the Facebook page, 
I'm working on sci-fi movies that feature strong female characters. So this week is Alien, because, of course, you have Sigourney Weaver, and, of course, you have Veronica Cartwright. Classic, strong female character. And, honestly, a historical movie in its own right. So. Yeah, and the misogyny in that movie is very apparent. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's the thing I like about... Well, you know what? We can talk about that on the next podcast. That's fine. I'll put my review up uh, this weekend. You'll this past weekend by the time you hear this show and you can read that on our facebook page so, which is uh which you can find by searching area 51 and a half on facebook all right so that makes me ask the question what is your favorite female-led movie oh my favorite female-led movie um honestly i would probably have to say alien because sigourney weaver is fantastic and ellen ripley is such a strong, admirable character. And the thing I love about her... Okay, we're going to talk about it. The thing I love about Ellen Ripley is... And this is kind of a slight on more modern films where they have strong female characters. Ellen Ripley is strong despite the men that are trying to hold her down. As where I find a lot of a lot of modern movies, uh, the women are strong in spite of the men that hold them down. Yeah, and but, I, I'm going to actually, to that point, I'm actually doing something which, surprise listeners, surprise aliens, surprise my children of the night, is not a horror movie, Thelma and Louise. It's a good movie. It's an excellent movie. I love all the tones in it. Gina Davis, Susan Sarandon were fantastic in it. Uh, I think it is, like to me, the pinnacle of, of chick flicks, if you will. Yep. You can enjoy a chick flick. I, that's not an insulting term. I don't think. No, I mean, like I, I love uh, the I love the original Buffy movie. That's a to- that's totally a chick. Flick. I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That I don't consider that at all a chick flick. No. to be honest. But uh, yeah, for me, it's Thelma and Louise because it's that idea of the road movie, the buddy movie that's just kind of gone wrong, and all the way that women get perceived and also misunderstood. Yeah, yeah, and you got Gina Davis and you have Susan Sarandon who are both probably two of the strongest actresses in history like susan sarandon's brilliant yeah yeah and they're gina, both brilliant actresses. Yeah, yeah and gina davis has gina davis is interesting because she's done some really bad movies but she has managed to pull good performances in them cut through island comes to mind well listen just because a movie's bad doesn't mean that the performances have to be bad. That's true. That and is 100% I think true. I think, and we're not going to get into into it, but I think of the movie Night of the Lepus, which <laughs> which is a terrible movie, but it's got Janet Lee in it. It's got uh, Divorce uh, Kelly. Kelly. It's got Rory Calhoun. You've got these strong actors who actually make all of their lines count and make it believable, even though it is the dumbest movie possible. Anyway, for, for clarification, this is a movie about giant killer bunnies. Which we'll discuss on another podcast. Yeah. Nick, it is time for the roundup. It is. So we're going to talk about something a little bit heavy-handed to begin with because I don't want to leave it to the end. We're going to talk about Easy by Kanye West and the game. Oh John and God. I watched the music video for this and we were shocked. It was... I can't believe it. I, I can't believe that Kanye West won basically threatened Pete Davidson. So a little bit of a little bit of backstory on this. If you don't know, um, Kim Kardashian West and Kanye West have split up. Since then, 
Kim has gotten together with the Saturday Night Live comedian Pete Davidson. And Kanye has been doing some questionable behavior. And it's culminated with this music video, this claymation music video, where he doesn't just bury and try to kill an effigy of Pete Davidson. He outright says he wants to kick his ass. If I was Davidson, I would take that as a threat and I would be going to the cops with it because that is a very, to me, that would be a very public threat. But it, it's, it's, it's interesting because it starts off with a really strong image of a church burning and the artwork in it is fantastic. But it's it's so mean spirited and so threatening. I just I just don't know. Yeah, it's one of those things that if you looked at it without the sound and you didn't know the context, artistically, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it's like watching a snuff film in a way because you know that it's yeah like that it something was, is happening here. It was shocking, and I was a little bit aghast by it because I sat there and I was just kind of shaking my head, going, um, "You know, this is really a bizarre thing." Like I, I kind of get tired of these celebrities now. Back about a decade ago, I didn't mind Taylor Swift at all. I, right. I, I liked her her country albums. I thought, "Oh, this is a cute little country girl. She's got these cute songs." I understand why. Little girls are liking it. I understand why they like it. I have a couple of those albums, in fact. I've got, like, her Christmas album and, and the, the the big album that made her a big star back in country. Then she sw- switched over to pop. But I stopped listening to Tay-Tay because as much as I think she's talented, most of the songs are some rip on some ex-boyfriend. And, okay, kudos. I guess you got the power to do that. But could we have a little bit of maturity and a little bit of professionalism nick do i ever bash any of my ex-girlfriends not really not really i might talk about things that have happened because you're my buddy yeah but i don't go out of my way to bash them or to publicly shame them well and and let's look at this it's not just boyfriends look at the song bad blood that is about the problems that she had with katie perry and how they stopped being friends or me some old geezer in her town that you know was just some Old geezer. It's like, yeah. get over yourself and get over it. I, I think there has to be... A, I mean, obviously they're going to do what makes them money, and for some reason that makes her money. I'm not exactly sure if Easy or whatever album it's on is going to make Kanye West money, because it's really upset a lot of people. Well, listen, like if we're, if we're comparing the two, I only bring it up for comparison. If mm-hmm. we're comparing the two, what Taylor Swift does is pretty innocuous. Yeah, fairly, yeah. You know, and you know, the... The boyfriends or whoever they roll their eyes. And I mean, she, she, she rolls her eyes and the way they go. She's definitely not showing her. She's not making a video where she but wasn't, buries someone. Wasn't it Kanye West who interrupted her actually yeah, getting the, yeah. the Grammy? And it's just like, oh my gosh! Like I, Kanye West has gotten to a point, I think, where he thinks he is completely untouchable. Um, and this is this is an example of that because you're not wrong. Honestly, I, I like you alluded to. I would be considering it a threat, and I would be saying to the police, "Is there something we can do about this?" Yeah, Kanye West is arguably one of the best rap artists of all time, and he knows it, and he believes his hype, and it has honestly, I think, ruined him as a person and a performer. And again, we don't want to get too political. We don't want to read too much into it. I I don't know what what 
other people think about it. I just was kind of shocked by it. Yeah. And I, I love horror, and it's kind of hard to shock me. Yeah. So we're going to move on to a couple of movies that have been announced recently. So before we get into this, we are horror fans, obviously, as you know, and we love Fetty Alvarez. Fetty Alvarez directed the Evil Dead reboot back in 2013, and he did Don't Breathe, both fantastic Fantastic horror films. Don't Breathe, for this bit of news, really excites me because Don't Breathe has that level of claustrophobia that feeds into this. John Fetty Alvarez is going to be writing and directing a new standalone alien film. Hmm. I'm excited for that. I think he is I think he's got the right pedigree to do an alien film justice. Well, I I'm interested in it, but here's the thing. As I said on their last podcast, I'm getting a little tired of them. Just, like, come up with something new. Fair. You Fair. know, like, I, I don't know how many xenomorphs I can watch hatching in people. I don't know how many, you know, times I can really watch. I mean, I like the classics. I mean, obviously, yeah. Yeah, I like rewatching them. It's fine, but I don't know. I, I I'll see it. I'll see it, but I, I, I don't know how I feel about it yet. I think he's the right person to do it because I think he can take it and do something new and exciting with it. But that's that's just yeah. But I also I also love Ridley Scott as a director. Yeah, well, the last two weren't great, <laughs> but anyway, they were still well directed though. Yeah, they were well directed, and you know, I, I okay. A lot of people give Covenant a lot of slack. I like Covenant to an extent. There were some problems I had with it, like, you blow and I'll do the fingering. One of the worst lines in film history. and But the alien itself, and once the alien actually appears and a lot of the carnage happens, it was fine. Fine little film. Um, then we have the announcement of a sequel to a Will Smith film, I Am Legend. And it looks, the way that's going to be, the way it looks it's going to be, is it's going to take place X amount of years after the original, and they're still working on a cure. They're still dealing with things. So I'm excited for that. I like Will Smith. I liked I Am Legend. It ha I had a problem with some of it, obviously, because I'm not a big fan of just CGI monsters. I think The Descent proved, the movie The Descent, proved that you could have a similar type of monster where it's a guy in a costume and it's still scary as all hell. But whatever. I enjoyed it. Fun movie, and I'm looking forward to the sequel. It's enjoyable for me, because uh, I'm an old geezer, I guess, and it reminds me of the uh, super host on Saturday afternoons. I like the original Omega Man with Charlton Heston better. And then even go back further, there's uh, one yeah. with, uh, with Vincent, Vincent Price, Price yeah. which is also just fantastic. I mean, it's... it's what is it? It's the the Last Man on Earth, Last I think. Man on Earth. Yeah, with Vincent and then Price. I Am Legend is the actual book. And yeah. it's it obviously has been redone a few different times. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting book. It, you you have it there for to harvest for a movie. It's it's good material for that. I think you know honestly with the three that we've mentioned, story wise, you can't go wrong with any of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, last thing I want to bring up because we just saw the trailer for it is Baz Luhrmann's new Elvis Presley film. Yes, and that looks fantastic. Tom Hanks playing the Colonel. I don't know the uh, young actor who's playing Elvis, though. No, I'm not familiar with him, but I'm not familiar with the him trailer either. looked really good. And it, it's got that very ingrained and very stylistic Baz Luhrmann touch to it. And I 
I can't wait to see that. Yeah, and it also, uh, there's a story there that they were touching on, like, you know, going into the idea of what it was like prior to the ending of segregation. Yeah. You know, where you had black artists who couldn't even stay in the hotels that they were performing in. Yeah. And one of my favorite stories, and again, it's a paraphrase, one of my favorite stories comes from Nat King Cole, who was one of my grandmother's favorite singers, and he moved into a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And the neighborhood association president came to him and was very um, flattering in a way, saying how much he loved his work and how much... Uh, a great singer he was but he said i hope you understand though that you know we don't want any undesirable people in the neighborhood to which nat king cole replied and again i'm paraphrasing this he replied i agree with you a hundred percent and when we get some undesirable people in this neighborhood you bring me that petition and i'll sign it i'm looking forward to it i i like i've seen music biopics where they just do a straight lace retelling of the artist's life and those ones tend to kind of or a moment in their life or a moment in their life but i this one's got the same it looks like it's got the same flair that rocket man or bohemian rhapsody yeah and it might even be better yeah it really could like elvis is such an interesting character and for baz lerman to bring elvis back and put him on screen oh and it's not just that i mean tom hanks as the colonel <laughs> Tom Hanks is amazing. Like, there's, there's, I don't think Tom Hanks has done anything since the early '90s that could be considered bad. No, I don't and know. I want to know if that's makeup on him or if he put on weight to do that role. I it's kind of dangerous for him to put on weight because he is he, diabetic. Yeah, he he actually got I believe he got diabetes from putting on weight from a show. Uh, maybe, but I, I do know that um, David Letterman uh, he was talking about. Being diabetic, and they said to him, to Tom Hanks, "Is like if you lost weight, if you could get down to your high school weight, then you wouldn't be diabetic." And Tom Hanks said, "Well, then I'm going to be diabetic." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love Tom Hanks. Everything he's done in memory is fantastic. Even the comedies he did back in the '80s are still great. Yeah, he's a fantastic actor. He is. So, John, shall we? Shall we get to the main event? The uh, the movie that we saw this weekend. The uh, the, the one Batman. that everyone is talking about. The Batman. The Batman. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that this is now our spoiler alert because this is going to be spoiler heavy. Yeah, the whole thing. So here we go, folks. Uh, this is your last warning. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. All right, everyone. So, first thoughts from me on The Batman. I absolutely adored this film. This is the... I am a huge, huge... As John will tell you, I'm a massive Batman fan. John loves Superman. I love Batman. And for me, this is the Batman film I had been waiting for my entire life. Everything was there. I felt Batman was done... Properly, and one of the thing, what I mean by that is, in the previous movies, the whole idea that Batman is a detective is lightly touched upon. In this movie, it was right there in the forefront. He's the world's greatest detective, and that skill is right there, and it's used. And you see all the different tech that he uses as a detective, and you see how he comes to a conclusion and all that stuff. 
absolutely fantastic yes, stuff. Yes, and I really liked that aspect because that's exactly what I thought too when they were doing this is the fact that it's getting back to that idea that he appeared in Detective, Detective Comics. Comics as the world's greatest detective, as the Batman, that he had become sort of this private eye, if you will. I mean, this is the 1930s. What do you want? You know, and so you have this idea that he is a detective that is working not outside the law, but beside them, with them. Yeah. And people aren't sure what to make of him because there's still the Dark Knight aspect. So I loved that detective aspect being brought back in because this movie, to me, felt along the same kind of lines in tone as Seven. It was very, very, very modern film noir. And yeah. it, it really allowed itself to be part of that with the detective story. Now, the neat thing about it, and this is one of the things I said to you earlier, it's not just a detective film noir. There's other aspects to it. There's a touch of horror. There's a touch of sci-fi. And... There, I have never seen a movie, at least not in recent history, that has done so much and remained so focused. Yeah, throughout the whole thing. And, you know, you were saying that this is the Batman movie you wanted. Yeah. This is the villains I wanted. Yes. You know, because I often thought that the Riddler had just been sort of subjugated to almost a second tier of the big three. You know, it's like Joker, then Penguin, then Riddler. Yeah. And I always thought that the Riddler should have been a little more unhinged and a little more vicious and more murderous. And to make him this kind of Saw-like character, I thought was absolutely a brilliant thing to do on the part of the writing team. Yeah, the Batman was a better Saw movies than the Saw movies. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but uh, to that point, though, they're taken directly from some of the graphic novels, like The Long Halloween and Hush. Yeah, and those are actually two of my all-time favorite graphic novels. Not just my favorite Batman graphic novels. Basically, I've got Watchmen, I've got Long Halloween, I've got Hush, and a, and a bunch of others. But those are my favorite. And seeing a lot of the stuff being lifted out of these these graphic novels and being used in a similar fashion in the movie. Like the Riddler, if I were to look at the Riddler in this movie, is he's kind of a um, an amalgamation of the classic Riddler character and Hush. Like the, the things that he do, does are very Hush-like and the way he, he targets people and the way he's targeting people of this this conspiracy that has affected Gotham City is very hush like. So let's let's speculate. And that's all we can do is speculate. Why do you think that the the screenwriters chose to do that rather than say make the long Halloween or make hush? So here's the thing. I personally I don't like it when they adapt they straight up adapt a storyline from comics because the thing is what works on the page doesn't necessarily work on screen but it's so much better when they take aspects from the comic and put it on the screen like one of the aspects that that they talked heavily about was how when uh carmine falcone was shot when bruce was a, a young boy at the time and they brought him to wayne manor and uh thomas wayne did surgery on him on on the diner dining room table that is directly lifted from Hush. But here's the thing. Here's the thing with Hush. Again, I like that story. But even when they adapted that into the uh, a DC animated movie, fine film. 
but there was a lot they changed in it because it's hard to buy some of the stuff that was happening from Hush in a movie format. And to take it from the page and put it on a live-action film, I don't think it's going to work. And the other fact of the matter is, is the, with directly adapting Hush, Hush has the Joker in it, Hush has Riddler, Two-Face, Clayface. It's a whole mishmash of different films. Yeah, the same with The Long Halloween. Exactly. So having, and we know that, we know from past experience, having a multitude of villains doesn't always work. Now, Spider-Man No Way Home bucked that trend hardcore. But if we look, if we go back and we look at even the 90s movies with, with Batman and you've got Mr. Freeze and Bane and Poison Ivy... It, it's hard to stay focused on said villains. And also, with the other villains in Hush, they're in a limited capacity, and people want to see their favorite villains yeah. as the main villain. Like, it gets very muddied. And uh-huh. I, I know that, uh, sort of to veer off, but as an example, when you look at the first Avengers movie, they did that extremely well where they gave all of the actors and all of the characters equal screen time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't. The movie didn't suffer from it. But you're no. right. To your point, the more you muddy it up with too many villains, the more that it, it it stays unfocused. This did not stay unfocused. Let's talk a little bit about the actors playing these villains. So we have the Penguin, we have Riddler, and I know Catwoman has evolved. She's no longer a villain. She's uh, sort of a a neutral. Yeah, she's Good. an anti-hero, yeah. essentially. So, Paul Dano, as the Riddler, was brilliant and so, so scary. If he doesn't actually get an Oscar nomination for this movie, I will actually be a little bit upset by that. Honestly, so will I. I just thought his... It was brilliant, especially in that scene where they've caught him and he's in Arkham. Yep. And he's talking to Batman through the, the cell. And... You don't know if he knows who Batman is or not. It's all this rich tapestry that has been formulated throughout this whole story of one clue leading to another that makes the best thrillers the best thrillers. And this is up there with the best thrillers. It really is. One of the things I loved about that scene is that it mirrors exactly a scene from Hush where Batman and the Riddler are talking. He's in Blackgate, but whatever. He's talking and he makes it clear that he knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. Yeah, the but it, Riddler it, knows. Yeah, but in but, the movie, he's yeah, in Arkham. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was just sitting there like, oh, is this going to go the same way? And then, yeah, I, it was a brilliant little scene. Paul Dano. I really liked the way Paul Dano played off of Robert Pattinson's anger and worry in that scene because you could see he was, he's got the mask on, and he's angry, but you can see he's also scared because he's like, oh, this guy's about to expose me. Yeah. And then he doesn't, because he doesn't know. Yeah, and you know, I, I have to say, getting back to Paul Dano's performance, what I like about Paul Dano as an actor, I've seen him in a couple things, is one, first of all, he went toe-to-toe with Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood, so hats yep. off to that. Even got an Oscar nomination for it. Paul Dano has, I, I you know, I don't know where he's been, because I haven't seen him in a lot of stuff lately. Yeah, I remember him from Not Another Teen Movie. Yeah. Like, that's just such a weird... Yeah, and, and the last thing I can remember is There Will Be Blood. Yeah. I, I know he's... Uh, Swiss Army Man. Yeah, okay, right. I, I didn't see Swiss oh, okay. Army Man, okay. so... But, but 
the, the thing of it is, is that this is a nice surprise to see him play this unhinged character who clearly is not thinking straight. Yeah. Who clearly is has a certain level of insanity to him. And just the various ranges of that mania from calm to really just upset and unhinged yeah. that his plan didn't go the way yeah. he wanted it to. That entire scene. Like, when, when Batman first walks in and we see him, he looks so unassuming. He just looks like a dude. Yeah. And then as it as that scene builds and builds, he is losing his absolute mind. He is screaming. He is yelling. He is just absolutely losing it. And it's just amazing to watch those levels in that short. It, it is not just he goes from, from point. He doesn't go from zero to 60 right away it gradually builds but in a short span yeah, of time and the outfit isn't goofy yeah i know i know, you know it's it's not that the green leotard it's not the jumpsuit it's not the frank gorshin or the jim carrey or anything like that it's a very logical kind of um vigilante um yeah, he, he wear he wears a coat and a mask, a green mask. Yeah, glasses. Yeah, and he's, he's got the the um, question mark on yeah. on there, which is on his. The lapel, yeah. But the but the question mark, even of itself, isn't that crazy idea of the question mark. It's it's purposeful. Yeah, it's an and it's part of the anagram. It's like, can you figure this out? You know, yeah. instead of just being sort of all, all covered with place. question yeah. marks. Yeah, it was it wasn't a it, gimmick. Like that's the thing is like a lot of. And because a lot of these characters are created in the 1930s and 1940s, they are very gimmicky at their core. Yes, because those comic books were directed to children. Yeah. But they've taken this character who is very gimmicky and they've made him scary. They have made the Riddler what the Riddler should be. Yeah. Like, even even today, two of the best Riddler performances... I don't know the actor that played him in Batman the Animated Series, but he was always in Batman the Animated Series. Yeah, he had the suit with the with the question marks all over, but he was always very cold and very calculating. And then there was the early two thousand series, the Batman, where Robert Englund voiced the Riddler. It, yeah, he looked like Marilyn Manson. It was kind of weird, but whatever. But it, Robert Englund was a good choice, and he did the very cold, very calculating way. But this was. Like, if you mashed a comic book character together with with Saw. Yeah. And it really, really worked. I can't it really worked. think of the, the video game. Uh, it came out after the Arkham video game back in, well, going back a number of years. But you remember that Batman has to basically go around and he has to yeah, uh, d- defuse all the traps that the yeah. Riddler had said. And it's almost cut away in just a voice. That, to me, is the, the first sort of I, foray we saw into this yeah, kind I of felt, I felt like this movie actually borrowed that idea from the games. And yeah. that's fine because that has really become a part of the Batman mythos now where he is more of a, a string puller yeah. than he is... like. Riddler's not a fighter. He's not going to go in. He's not like the Joker and go in and go toe-to-toe with the No, he was completely an anarchist in this. Yeah, Yeah. and it was fantastic. But but with a point. Yeah. With a point. And let's just briefly talk about that point because, you know, this is not a political show, folks, and we're not going to get political, but we are seeing this kind of activity in the world today. Yeah, so one of the big things that happens with the Riddler in this movie is that he has an online following 
and he is spreading his message of conspiracy theories and hate. Now, this is this is the th- and telling the truth and the lies. You yeah. can't trust the government. You can't yeah. trust, um, yeah. you know, your the authority figures. You can't trust the police. You can't trust whoever. Yeah, and he he he's radicalizing people doing this, and it is very similar to a lot of the stuff that we're seeing today, and. This is this is the important, but but it's not the focus of the movie. It's not the focus of the movie. And remember last last show when I said Texas Chainsaw Massacre was not the movie to pull that kind of message. Mm-hmm. This was the movie to pull this message, and, and they it was did an it well. Important one, and they did it well. Yeah. See, uh, and that's uh, to touch back on that too. I, I kind of liked Texas Chainsaw Massacre more the second viewing for that idea of. Yeah. Of uh, left creating the right, the right creating the left, and you know people just need to chill out and settle down. And that's touched upon uh, touched upon in this movie when you have that scene with Batman and Paul Dano, because he's Paul Dano is telling him, you, "I'm the reason I'm doing this." Yeah, he's saying to Batman, "I'm doing this because of you." Yeah, we're and working together, Batman. No, I'm not. But okay, <laughs> but like that's the thing is like it's all. A similar message. This movie just did it so much better. So A plus to uh, Paul Dano, and let's talk about another actor also playing a villain who gets an A plus from me, Colin yeah. Farrell as the Penguin. Again, as I said, this is how I wanted to see the Riddler. This is how I always thought the Penguin should be. This total mobster crime boss person that isn't going around like Burgess Meredith with a, a top hat and <laughs> a yeah. cigarette going. Wah, 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 wah. And he's like. Okay, so Colin Farrell wearing a fat suit and the makeup is fantastic. He's unrecognizable. You can't tell it's Colin Farrell. It's amazing, but the performance that he pulls through it, fantastic. And the way the character is approached in this kind of neo noir world is very much how a gangster would be portrayed nowadays. They don't call him the Penguin to his face. They don't call him Oswald. They don't call him Cobblepot. He's just called Oz. Like yeah. they, they just refer to him as Oz because one he's he's second level at this point, and two, well they're not going to call him the Penguin because that's just silly. But the performance of Colin Farrell in this is absolutely brilliant too because he delivers every line perfectly and delivers it with that hood kind of idea. Like a, there was one of the video games they made him Cockney or something like that, yeah. which didn't even work. Um, but it was getting to that idea of him being like a crime boss. So if the fact of the matter is he has the nose, but it's not that exaggerated nose that Danny DeVito had. He has a limp. He has a waddle, but it's not that exaggerated limp or waddle that you saw in Gotham. Yeah. You know, not that I'm I'm ripping on any of the performances in the TV series Gotham, but you know, you, you just see this where you go, this is why they call him the penguin because he does look like a penguin in his suit but he is so gangster and he's so typical stereotypical mobster and that's what the penguin should be but and he makes it work he makes it work because colin farrell's brilliant like colin farrell to me is like lawful neutral nicholas cage like (laughs) he does all the all the the Crazy things that Nicolas Cage does, but he knows how to reel it in a lot better. Yeah. Because, like, I've seen Colin Farrell do some really, really out there stuff. Like, going back to the early 2000s with Daredevil, when he played Bullseye, 
some of that stuff was real hokey. I get what he was doing, but it wasn't great. But that was also probably the script and probably the direction. I can I, I, I can agree with that, but this this is something else. This was something this else. This was a great performance. I would I, again I would sit there and go, this is an Oscar worthy performance for best supporting actor, I the, would think. The fear in his eyes during that chase scene. Oh, the, the, the chasing was gripping first the, the off. The delivery of those lines. I got you, I got you, I got him. Uh-huh. Oh, look at that, I got him. And then the Batmobile comes through the flames and he just, you could see his face go pale at that point. Yeah, and I want to talk about this. Since you brought that up, I want to talk about that before we get into the other actors. Which is basically, because of that scene, mm-hmm. this is what I liked about the action in this movie. None of it felt, as we've seen in other Batman movies, in other superhero movies, none of it felt like it couldn't actually happen. Yeah, it was very grounded in that respect. The only one, and the only one I'm going to, I'm going to let it by because he's wearing his, his suit, but he crashes into a, a, a train track and goes flying and whatever, he's got his suit on. But other than that, everything looks completely plausible. Everything looks... Good. Even, even that I bought, though, because of the armor. Yeah, because of the armor. Exactly. Yeah. If he didn't have the armor, I'd be like, okay. Uh, but, like, everything that happens and is... And he didn't just get up. Like, no. He, he went, oh, that hurt. <laughs> he sold it. He yeah. sold it. He, he got up and limped off. Like so, a, now let's talk about Zoe Kravitz as yes, the Catwoman. Yes, please. Now, they, so, never actually, they never actually call her the Catwoman. She refers to herself as the Cat at one point, but yeah. whatever. Um... First and foremost, let, let's just talk about the way that they portrayed this character. Because she, when we first meet her, the only reason she's stealing is to try and help her friend get out of the country. And that's a really interesting thing because, it, you know, in the original comic books, in even more modern comic books, she is a cat burglar. She is steal, stealing for Yeah, she law. started off as a cat burglar. Yeah. I think it was like on a yacht, if I remember the comic book correctly. Yeah. She, but Zoe Kravitz took this character, and here's the thing, they could have taken, and Zoe Kravitz is absolutely gorgeous in this film, they could have taken any sexy woman, throw her in a cat suit, and say, here, go do this. But Zoe Kravitz just wasn't that. She took the character, and you could see so much anger and so much pain in her because of the relationship that she has with Carmine Falcone. And the interaction she has with Robert Pattinson as Batman about all that. Because he wants to know, what is your relationship with Carmine Falcone? And she doesn't want to tell him because, well, she's actually his daughter and she really doesn't yeah. want to tell people and that. She's, you see this, this really great performance where the whole part of, of the character is that it's hard for her to trust. So she's trying to trust the bat. Yeah. But there's that reservation to fully trust the bat. But then she lets her, her guard down and she tells him a few things. And and he never reciprocates that. No, he doesn't. So you always have that kind of dance that they're doing. And the sexual attraction is there, as we've seen in, in many iterations before. Yeah. And it's just a nice, beautiful performance on her part. And... To their credit, her fighting style yes. and the claws 
really made sense. Everything about the movie made sense. It was logical. It didn't take me out once. You know, and that's the thing is like I watch a lot of fight scenes where it's women versus men in these movies, and you can tell that it's just been. There are movies where you can tell that it's just been choreographed that the the the, the stunt men are just being really accommodating to these women that are fighting them. But this one, I bought everything that she did to to an exact point. Yeah. Everything she did made sense. And all and all the fight scenes made sense. Man, the fight scenes with Batman. Holy crap. They were really good. They like, were you, really good. They, I mean, they were hard hitting. Like, like, he was aiming to put these guys in the hospital. Yeah, and, and they, they start off, too, with that gang of thugs off the subway. Well, this is our first introduction to Batman and his fighting style. And you just basically had to joygasm yeah. when, when, when he starts pounding well, on the one guy. But, I mean, you see that idea of... In the original Bob Kane, Bill Finger comic, yeah. where you see Bruce Wayne sitting there and he says, I need a disguise. I need something that strikes fear into the hearts of men. And then a bat flies in the window yeah. and he says, that's it. I'm going to become the knight. I'm going to become the bat. So this, to me, is the first time since the Tim Burton movies that we see that idea of Batman coming out of a dark place. Right. And that... That happens not just with with Batman. That happens with the Riddler as well. Like when you see the opening scene and he's in the the mayor's mansion, he just mm-hmm, appears. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is the horror aspect of it. That I like the terror aspect yeah. because the mayor's talking on the phone. He doesn't see this guy behind him. Yeah, and it's, that it's, is it's, scary. It's brilliant too because it's like there's that that line. It's like where he says, "I don't hide in the shadows. I am the shadow." Yeah, yeah. Um, but going back to the the fight scenes for just a second, my. My belief is, and this has been said online a few times as well, Batman doesn't kill you because he'll let the, the medical bill do that by itself. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, with, with Zoe Kravitz playing the Catwoman, yeah. she was very sleek. I think that she was very grounded in the character. I yeah. think she knew where this character was coming from. I think she's very familiar with DC Comics because her stepdad is Aquaman. You yeah. know, uh, I think that there is a lot for her to to have grabbed onto. When she first came out, I was like, eh. but then as the performance went on, yeah. it just, she sold she, it. She made it her own. Yeah. She really did. But believable, too. The costuming was believable. Yeah, like, that, that's the thing, is, like, when you look at, when you look at Catwoman in the comic books, even some of the more original ones, the costume is a little bit, okay, you, is a little bit like, okay, you live in this crappy little apartment with your friend. And your cats. And your cats. And I'm supp- supposed to believe that you have this awesome tactical suit just lying around somewhere? No, I don't believe that. Yeah, and, you know, when we go back to the, the Tim Burton one with Michelle Pfeiffer, she makes the suit. You know, we see her make the suit. So that's another thing I want to talk about with the Tim Burton ones. So the music in this film. First and foremost, I love the music. But if you listen to Batman's theme... And you listen to Catwoman's theme; they are absolutely throwbacks. Yeah, to the day. I noticed that particularly with yeah. the Catwoman one. Yeah, because you've got that high the violin, high strings, the high yeah. strings. and the, like it's not Batman's theme is not, um, it's not quite as rah rah as the Tim Burton one, but it it starts lowly and it moves up to that crescendo. To me, it sounded. I'm, some, I don't know if anybody would agree with me on this or what, but to me it sounded like a mixture of the Tim Burton Batman theme with Jaws. And the way 
that because you've got the dun 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 dun, which sounds like. But dun, it gets into dun. the 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 John Carpenter style of yeah, doing music, you know, with a few chords and a few notes. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, like it was. It's so good, and that again feeds into. Again, to the horror element of it. Yeah. And, oh my god! And the running theme of Ave Maria through there, right? you know, like the salvation versus the yeah, yeah. It's um, the, the birth uh, of these these figures. And when the when the movie starts and they're playing Ave Maria, I was sitting there like, "Well, this is new for a Batman movie." Well, what was really cool about the opening is that that was our first world into this, and I I was skeptical when I kept hearing about all the raves about it because I'll be honest, when Rogue One came out. People raved about it. Oh, it was the best Star Wars movie ever. And then I saw it and I went, okay, it was a good film, but it's not the best Star Wars movie ever. So I, I kind of discredit a lot of people's reaction to yeah. it. I, 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 when, when I say discredit, though, when I say discredit, I just mean I'm not paying attention to it. You make your own decision. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. That's yeah. what we should be doing. Right. So when this movie starts and it opens up, I just sat there and went... Yeah, from just this opening shot, I see why people are talking about it this yeah. way. And let's talk about the opening shot, and let's talk about Gotham. Yes. So, Gotham City should be a character in the film. Yeah. And this really nailed it. Yeah. It nailed it in a way that hasn't been nailed since Batman Returns. Like, here's the thing about the Nolan films. I enjoyed Nolan films. But the problem with Gotham City in the Nolan films, and I know what he was going for. He was going for a more realistic approach, right. and that's 100% fine. But the fact of the matter is, is Gotham City in the Nolan films just looks like Chicago. Because it is Chicago. It is Chicago. It just looks like another city. This one, and we can go back to last weekend when we were talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. right? So you talked about the filth. Yeah. And this, yeah, this brought yeah. the grime. It brought the grit. It brought that. Yeah. It, you know, it, it rains a heck of a lot in Gotham City. Apparently, it does. But it's right on the ocean front too. Yeah. So the the thing of it is, like, you could tell that this was a very corrupt place because of the color choice, because of the cinematography, because of the way that the set juxtaposes, because of the camera angles, yeah. because of the, the water, because of the the grime and the seedy places that they go. There was a filth to this movie. Not a horror movie filth, but no. a filth that you see in something like I alluded to earlier with Seven. Yeah, yeah. And that's, honestly, yeah, that, this movie does remind me of Seven. Yeah. And it is just... Yeah, you know what? There we go. Paul Dano's Riddler is basically uh, a mixture of John Doe and Saw. But, you know, it's it's really quite interesting, too, when you talk about the cities, because it's also that separation between Gotham and Metropolis. Yeah, yeah. Gotham is this kind of archaic-looking, chaotic-looking city with Art Deco and gargoyles and... Built on corruption. Built on corruption, as where Metropolis... I mean, it really, like, Metropolis looks it's how a it mod, sounds. It's a modern city. It's a modern city. It looks beautiful. It's bright. It's wonderful. Yeah, and I think the last time that I'd had a reaction to Gotham City being Gotham City was probably the Tim Burton movie. Yeah. Uh, where he did a lot of Art Deco and he had those huge kind of statues. Yes, it was all set work and everything like that. Yeah. But it felt like it, especially when the Waynes come out of the, right. the, the theater yeah. and they're walking through and there's that hooker who's like, hey, how you doing, honey? And... All this kind of stuff, and they go down the back alley, and so, and that that's that's the thing is like when you see Batman nineteen eighty nine, 
you hadn't really seen anything like that in a movie before because you hadn't really seen anything like that from, from Tim Burton before. It was a wholly new experience for film goers. And I think that this this Batman movie is similar on that respect because honestly I look at I look at Gotham in um, the Joel Schumacher movies, and in all honesty, that is just a neon mess. Oh my lord, that's um, just harkening back to the comedy series that was the Adam West Batman. Yeah, well, I mean, Joel Schumacher grew up on that, whatever. Well, that's fine, and that has its place, and I still adore it, and I love it because of what it is. Yeah. But let's face it, that was a children's show. Yeah. Now, if you look at, and I've already mentioned the Nolanverse movies, but if you look at that, Batman Begins kind of starts off in the right foot because you've got Arkham Asylum. You have uh, the Narrows. It's a very... It has a very, very specific style yes, to it, a very and they Gotham sta- style And they stayed it. away from certain villains, and it was wonderful to see that those villains that they used were the Scarecrow and Ra's yeah. al Ghul. Now, the... Um, I really want Matt Reeves to do a movie with Ra's al Ghul so that he can... Pr- Properly, properly pronounce yeah. his name as Ra's al Ghul. Anyway, um, the Nolan verse when it gets to the Dark Knight, it's it's just Chicago and the Dark Knight Rises. It's just Pittsburgh, like it has no character to it. This movie treats Gotham, and I'm not even I can't even mention really the the Ben Affleck movies because we don't really see a ton of Gotham in those movies to really get a feel for it. But this movie had the same character, the Gotham characteristic, the same level of characteristic as the Tim Burton films. And it yeah. was fantastic. Before we get into Robert Pattinson, yeah. I want to say this. I feel kind of sorry for Ben Affleck because this is the script that he should have had. I agree with that. Um, I liked Ben Affleck as Batman. I know. I liked him as Bruce Wayne, too. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's the thing is, like, you have to be able to do both. Except in this movie, but that's a, a, another dis, another discussion. Um, ben Affleck should have been given a good, well-scripted solo outing. Honestly, before they did Batman v Superman, they really should have done that for him. But the fact of the matter is, is they didn't. And and yeah. those those, if you like them, fine. I find the those scripts pretty weak. Yeah, and I don't blame you for that. So, let's talk about Robert Pattinson as the Batman. Complete disclaimer, he is not my favorite actor. Yeah. But, I will say, he did a very good job and a very... He's, he's a credible actor. He is very credible. I just find that he's a one-note kind of guy. You know, which is, like, I don't know that there's a lot of variation in the characterizations that I've seen. However, with Batman... You don't need a lot of that. Yeah, especially with this movie, because one of the things with Batman is that he, is, he essentially has three personalities. He has Bruce Wayne that everyone out in Gotham sees, the the playboy billionaire. He has the Batman, which is the crime-fighting dude that runs around in bat pajamas and kicks the, the, the asses of criminals. And then you have this kind of middle character, the character who is very calm, very collected, tactical, and knows what he wants to do. The detective. The the detective. The character that Alfred sees, the character that Jim Gordon sees, the the character that Batgirl, all the Robins see. 
this is not... And this, the obsession. The obsession. Because his parents' murder was never solved in this movie. Yeah. And you see the obsession in this in this film, but you never see the three aspects of Bruce Wayne, of Batman. This is a very... The obsession has taken complete hold of him. He is neglecting himself. He is... He is combative with Alfred. Yeah, I don't know that he's necessarily neglecting himself per se. Yeah. Because obviously he's working out, he's doing things. I think that it's that he's lost in the obsession. Yeah, like you can look at it like a complete workaholic. Someone who comes home and they're still doing their job. He comes home at ne- oh, in the morning probably. Yeah. And he's still in the Batcave doing his job. Yeah. He is completely obsessed and he's yeah, he like he's complete like he's not all there yeah. mentally. And let's talk about that for a minute too cuz this is correct me if I'm wrong. This is the first movie that I've seen where Wayne Manor is actually in the city. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like Wayne Manor is a part of Wayne Tower or something, which is an interesting idea. I don't I don't disagree with that. I think it's a fine idea. Hmm. I think it worked. Well, he, he basically lives, as was described by Paul Dano, the Riddler, lives in a park. So, you know, obviously he doesn't live in, like, Central Park or anything like that, but well, the estate around it yeah. is within the city. And that's the thing is, like, that, that is, uh, if you look at what the stuff that the Riddler says to Batman about Bruce Wayne, that is indicative of the ivory tower. Yeah. And I think that was, a, honestly, I think that was a fine choice by the, by the film. I do, too. I do, too. And, you know, it's it's just like one of those things that I will say that Robert Pattinson does bring to it is that broodiness. Yeah. Now, yeah. you know, he just brings that to just about every performance I've seen him do. But, you know, he it works for Batman. It really does. And I think he was a good choice for that. I Like I said, this was the Batman film. I have been waiting to see. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it was the narration that he does. Because to me, that was the the little thought blocks mm. that come in a comic book. Yeah, writing a diary. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was Which so... Which was interesting because the, the Riddler has his kind of diary. The anagrams, yeah. the... the uh, I forget what they were called, but the the puzzles and it's you the look, ciphers, the ciphers, the ciphers, yeah. yeah. And you look at it and you can't make any sense of it whatsoever as you're reading it. It's like he's gone over top of other letters and made another letter, and yeah. it's just almost indecipherable. And then you have Bruce Wayne's journal as the Batman. Like I went out tonight and I picked up Milk for Alfred, but then I ran into you know yeah. this, and the, where does this darkness come and where does it end and how do I? get into the psyche and you know and it's very interesting to see that side of it because again that's a side that we hadn't seen except going back to the tim burton with michael keaton where he realizes that jack napier is the one that killed his parents yeah really honestly just at the end of it amazing film i want to watch it again i want to watch it again theater it was so good. Oh, and let's just talk about the Batmobile for a second. Let's do talk about the Batmobile. That was a cool Batmobile. And it wasn't a tank, and it wasn't some... You know what it was? It was a car. Yeah. It was a car. Now, I don't think it was all that cool. I'll tell you why. Because it doesn't have an iconic look. You know, like, if you look at the, the Tim Burton one, it's got an iconic look. Yeah. If you look at the Adam West one, it's got an iconic look. Yeah. 
This doesn't have an iconic look, but if they had taken anything else and they did anything else with it, the believability would be lost. Yeah. And so the fact that they made that choice is a good choice. It's not a tank. It is a car. Mm-hmm. It is only a car. Yeah. It's not like bulletproof or well, anything like that. It's souped up, yes. Yeah. It's got the NOS engine and all that kind of stuff. I, I, but, I think the, but the reveal. Oh, the that reveal. was so cool. Like, just... You, so when they reveal it, you've got Jim Gordon and, and the Penguin, and they're watching this car in the shadows rev up, and there's there's a red light coming from under the hood, and a blue light over here, yeah, and, and not and like police, but like yeah, like the, it's just revving up, and it's loud, like it's a muscle car, so yeah, it's yeah, be loud, yeah, but it's got a it's got a jet engine on the back, so and, yeah, <laughs> and it is revving up, and it, it's almost like that. Okay, let's play, let's yeah. have this chasing, and the beauty of this chasing is the fact. That they didn't do ridiculous stunts. Yes, there's there's this huge pile up on the the highway, that's going to happen. But we see that idea of you know the penguin has gotten ahead, and Batman is is trapped by the melee on the the highway, and he doesn't know what he's going to do. But then an opportunity presents itself. Yeah, yeah. And that opportunity is not illogical. No, it's not. And it, it also shows how quickly Batman can think because that opportunity presented itself at the 11th hour and he just went doing it. Yeah. I don't know what's on the other side of this, but I'm doing it. Yeah. And what I liked about the chase scene and the car is, as I said earlier, they didn't do anything that I felt was impossible. One of the Batman movies, I think it's the 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 fourth one with Arnold Schwarzenegger in it, I think, where they leap off and they're driving on a church roof and... Oh, no, no, maybe that's... That's actually, so... It it is in that one. It's in that one, but they also drive on a church roof in one of the Nolan verses. Yeah, with a big tank of a car, and you can't do that. It would just, like, crash through the roof. So they didn't do anything like that in this movie, and I just thought that was There was nothing in the film that was physically out of place. Yeah. You it, could buy it. It made sense. The physics made sense. And, yeah, all around fantastic film. I want to see a sequel. I want to see this again. I will probably rewatch so this several times once I get it on Blu-ray. Let's talk about that for a moment. And we'll, we'll add, if you're still with us, we're going to add a second spoiler alert here because I think it's important. Okay. This was a scene that I felt was not necessary. Oh, right, yeah. This is the only thing that I wish they had not done. You called it complete fan service. I did not need to see a silhouette. We never got to actually see his face-ish from the other cell. I did not need to see a conversation between the Riddler and the Joker. The only way, before I say this, I'm kind of sick of seeing the Joker. I'm kind of sick of seeing how... How hard it's got a it, huge rogue gallery, and this was supposed to be their movie. I know this and, should have been the Riddler. And here's the thing: everybody says, "Oh, it's so hard to play the Joker." Honestly, so many jo- so many people played the Joker to perfection now that I don't think it's that hard to play him. And two of them got Oscars. Yeah, so you know what? No, I'm sick of seeing the Joker. The only way, the only way I would have accepted this Joker is if it was made very clear. That it was Defoe playing him. That is the only Joker I would accept at this point. Yeah, but it doesn't work in this world because Defoe is too old. 
in this world. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I am, I'm just, the Joker, the Joker's been done to death. It doesn't need to be done anymore. Show me something intriguingly new. And that, but that's, to me, that's what took me out of the movie briefly and why it doesn't get a perfect score. Yeah. Is because they threw that scene in there where it's just like, no, this is the Riddler's outing. This is the Penguin being set up to be a continual villain maybe the next one in the sequel this is not the joker's movie we don't need the joker in here and i i feel like that reeks of studio interference oh we gotta have the joker joker's gotta be in it somewhere like that's how that feels to me it's hard to know it is it's hard to know but that, that to me that was a misstep in an otherwise near perfect movie yeah honestly easy nine out of ten for me yeah easy nine out of ten and you know what i'm gonna give it a nine out of ten too because um it's just, if you haven't seen it yet, folks, you are not going to be disappointed. We don't try to oversell movies. This is a really good superhero movie and the best Batman movie since The Dark Knight. The hype is real. Yeah, it's well-deserved, too. Or, 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 is the hype real? Oh, come on, that was funny. All right. So, Nick... Before we uh, end this this particular podcast, April is going to be a busy month for us. We've got Morbius coming out. We've got uh, The Secrets of Dumbledore. There's a couple other movies that I really, really want to see. Yeah, it's looking real good. I am, I'm excited for Morbius. I'm excited for Morbius because I grew up on the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. Yeah. He was so... He was heavily uh, showcased in there. Yeah, The uh, Living Vampire. Yeah. Although in the 90s show, he... He drank plasma, not blood, which is just hilarious, but whatever. Well, maybe he does in the movie. We don't know yet. <laughs> we, we don't know yet. So I'm looking forward to that. I like Jared Leto most of the time. I think he's going to do well as yeah. this. And I'm really looking forward to Doctor Strange in oh. the Multiverse of Madness. Oh, that looks Directed so... by Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi's back doing a Marvel movie. Yeah, and I think that is going to... It'd be really cool if Tobey Maguire showed up. But... Um, <laughs> I, I think this is going to be a real turning point in the story for Marvel. Yeah, and the internet's abuzz with the speculation that Patrick Stewart might be in it as Professor X. We yeah. don't know for yeah. sure. And that's that's an interesting little part of that, uh, the, the trailer, because you see him being led up by a, a group of classic Ultrons. Yeah. And that's interesting to me. But anyway. Yeah, it, I mean, there's a lot we could dissect and speculate on. I don't like doing that because I want to go in and enjoy the I movie. Know, I know, but it's so much fun. Yeah. But... Anyway, anyway. So, um, yeah, looking forward to Nope, looking forward to the Elvis movie, looking forward to the, the, the continuation of the Marvel franchise. It's it's looking like a good year for movies. Yeah. Oh, Jurassic Park Dominion. Oh, I know you're excited about that. Oh, I'm that. so excited Me, for less that. so. But, I know. but what I'm excited about is that Sam Neill comes back and Laura Lord Dern and, yep. and Goldblum. Yeah. You know, so and I, not just in cameo roles. No, they are like they're in it. Involved. Yeah, they're in it. So, Nick, how can our faithful aliens get a hold of us? Well, as I mentioned before, you can find us on Facebook by searching Area 51 and a half. You can find us on Twitter at the Area 51H. You can find us on Twitch at the Area 51H. And yeah, that, that's how they find yeah. us. And just to remember uh, to remind you folks that the question of the week is what is your favorite female led movie? It's a good question. Yeah. Also, also, do not forget to like, 
share, subscribe, and rate us on Spotify. And that is all the time we have today, Faithful Aliens. This is John Allen and Nick Snyder, Snyderman501, saying goodbye, good luck, and we'll see you next time.